Well, I wonder what is the most extravagant expression of love that you have ever received? Was there ever a time when someone did something for you that you will never forget? Back in 1997, the news outlets were buzzing with a story about Carlos Rogers of the Toronto Raptors basketball team. He did something incredible for his sister. He'd worked long and hard to make it into the NBA all of his life. It was his dream, and his dream came true. His secure future, all the success and financial benefits he could ever hope for were right in front of him, but he walked away from it all. Why? Carlos's sister was sick, very sick. She could not survive without a new kidney. So Carlos Rogers vacated his starting position on the team to go home and donate one of his kidneys to his sister. He knew it would end his professional basketball career, but compared to his love for his sister, it just didn't matter. He showed his love and his devotion to her dramatically. USA Today called Carlos Rogers the most unselfish man in the NBA. Well, we're moving into the Thanksgiving and Christmas seasons, and in the weeks just ahead, hundreds of millions of dollars will be spent on gifts and cards and candy and poinsettias. Andy Williams crooned, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and it will be a happy time for most people. But the love that is expressed during the holidays may be less than memorable, only because that we have come to expect it at this season. But the really memorable expressions of demonstrated love take place when we do the unexpected, when we do the sacrificial, when we get extravagant, like Carlos Rogers, and like Mary, the sister of Lazarus in John 12. John gives us a timetable. It was Saturday before Passover. It was after sunset, meaning work could once again resume. The Sabbath was over. Jesus is now back in Bethany, less than two miles outside of Jerusalem, and He is the guest of honor at a dinner being held in the home of Simon, a wealthy man whom Jesus had healed of leprosy. Martha, Mary's sister, was in the kitchen, as was her custom. Lazarus, who'd been raised from the dead just a few days before, was probably Trading, trading stories with Simon the leper about their respective journeys with Jesus. In the case of Simon, his journey from sickness to health, and in the case of Lazarus, his journey from death to life. Simon talking about becoming whole, and Lazarus talking about coming out of a hole. And the disciples had to be listening spellbound by their first-hand accounts. It was a night of destiny. During the next week, things would happen so fast that these friends of Jesus would be breathless. The very next day, He would ride into Jerusalem hearing praise from the adoring crowd, but also facing threats from the religious leaders. And in exactly one week, 
Jesus would be dead, his body sealed in a borrowed tomb. So it was in the course of this bittersweet evening that our story unfolds. Let's read John's account from John 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Mary's, or rather Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped His feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of His disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Did you notice in the text that John moves the spotlight of our attention from Mary, then to Judas, finally to Jesus? First we see the gift of Mary in verse 3. It says, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped His feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now please know that I am not an expert when it comes to expensive perfume. But I have done some research. There is Marilyn Miglin's Parfum. So the first question we men ask is, how much is it going to cost? Right. Well, men, it only costs $500 for a one-ounce bottle. Just imagine, though, how wonderful your wife will smell. I'm just saying that she had better smell, fall on the floor, go into spasms, incredible at that price. And she might smell even better if you stepped it up a little to Clive Christian's sandalwood and Indian jasmine perfume. It sells for $1,820 per bottle. You'll get 30 milliliters at that price, which is enough to last about one month. But man, just imagine the ecstasy of coming home at the end of the day to hug your wife and smell that $1,820 perfume. Well, get this. That pint of pure nard that Mary poured out on Jesus' feet was valued at a year's wages, even at 10 bucks an hour. That's at least $21,000 in today's currency. So why did she do it? Now, let me suggest some reasons for such a gift. One, 
would have to be gratitude. Uh, the sisters' desire, Mary and Martha's desire to have this dinner for Jesus was because of their overflowing thankfulness for the restored life of their brother Lazarus just a few days earlier. So how thankful sh should we be that because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, He will one day restore us to our loved ones who precede us or follow us into the greater life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. What a day that will be. And in Joplin, Missouri, my mother and father have their burial sites. My dad has already been buried. Kayleen's mother and dad have their grave sites. Her father already buried there. And Kayleen and I have our grave sites there. And one day, one day, if the Lord tarries and we pass, we're going to pop out of that grave and join hands with my mother and dad and her mother and dad, and we're going to rise to meet the Lord in the air. Was there gratitude in Mary and Martha's heart? Yes, there was. Should there be gratitude in our hearts for all that to which we have to look forward? Absolutely. Second reason I think she made this sacrificial gift is because of love. There can be no doubt of the love which Mary and her sister and her brother had for the Lord Jesus, but it was mutual. John chapter 11, verse 5, we read, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. But the love of Jesus is not restricted to a few. He has the same love for all of His friends and even those who are alienated from Him by their choice. 1 John 4.19, we love Him because He first loved us. Mary's sacrificial gift was because of gratitude and it was because of love. And thirdly, it was because of worship. It was true, unself-conscious worship. Her humility before the Lord eclipsed her pride. She didn't care about being criticized. She cared not what do they think, but only what does He think. And in our worship, let us know something of this kind of ego abandonment when we come into worship. First Chronicles 16, 29 Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. And in another passage we read, He is wonderful. Praise Him. Bring an offering into His temple. Worship the Lord majestic and holy. Now, you can only respond like this if your eyes are focused on the Lord, not distracted by the human engineering of a worship service. I think part of Mary's worship was that she understood what was coming for Jesus, specifically 
His suffering and death. I think Mary got it. She truly listened to Jesus. She understood what even the disciples had missed. In Matthew's account of this event, in Matthew 26, 12, Jesus said, when she poured this perfume, she did it to prepare me for burial. I think Mary quietly understood the prophetic scriptures about the need for the Messiah to suffer and die. And so her demonstration of thanksgiving did come from a place of gratitude, a place of love, but it also came from a far deeper place, a place of worship, and because of that, she was extravagant. And folks, there's devotional application for us here. If we have gratitude and love and worship in our hearts for Jesus, we would not want to come into His presence empty-handed. A poor widow once came to worship God with two copper coins, which make a penny, and her gift was commended by Jesus because it represented all she had. Mary, in pouring out this expensive perfume, was possibly sacrificing her dowry, something valuable for which she had saved a long time. But you see, the amount is not as important as thanksgiving in the heart. At the same time, the amount is often an indicator of what's in the heart. I read that Butterball Turkey has a hotline to answer questions A few years ago, in early November, a customer called wanting to know if a turkey that had been frozen for 15 years would be safe to eat. And the Butterball employee responded that the meat wouldn't hurt you, but the flavor would be poor. So the caller replied, well, that's what we were thinking too. We'll just go ahead and donate it to our church. Listen, folks, our gifts to Jesus had better not be like our gifts to goodwill. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Abel gave God an offering of the fat portions of the firstborn of his flocks, but Cain brought some fruits of the soil. There's a difference. And God looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, God did not look with favor. Why? Well, because Cain's offering was casual. It was unplanned. It was secondhand. It was grudging. Abel's was representative of his best. King David once had the opportunity to give God a gift that was actually provided to him without cost by a well-to-do man named Arauna. David flatly refused it in 1 Samuel 24, 24. He said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord offerings that cost me nothing. Folks, can I be a spiritual shepherd here for a moment? Our giving here at Crossroads has been an area of consistent growth in recent years, and it has freed us to do some significant things, like pay off our debt seven years early 
and support nine new full-time church planting evangelists in Lucknow, India, and the establishment of the West Side Ministry Center, and the Crossroads Worship Arts Academy, and Community One, all debt-free, just to name a few. But here's the thing. While we have grown by about a thousand in weekend worship attendance, and we have grown by about 1,600 members, we have not grown in the total number of people who have discovered the joy of giving to Jesus, generously contributing to God's work and God's purpose. And although our offerings have grown year after year, which is evidence of the enlarged heart of many of our people, our total number of giving individuals and families has remained the same in 2011, 2012, 2013. I consider this to be serious. Some who belong to the Lord are coming to worship every week empty-handed. Some who are in Christ have never exercised their faith in consistently giving a tithe or above. And as a pastor of this flock, I have to answer to God if I fail to teach this biblical principle of giving generously. Look at these words which were underlined in a Bible given to me at age 12 by my grandmother, words that are seared into my conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. I live with a dull ache that I could fail to teach God's people how to experience God's best. So, we try to provide appealing special opportunities like affordable Christmas and our year-end offering, as well as challenge our church to be faithful in weekly stewardship. We do it for one reason, one reason, to allow our people to experience the same joy that Mary did when she broke that alabaster box and anointed the feet of Jesus with over $20,000 worth of perfume. But the disciples were critical of Mary's extravagant gift, and can you imagine who the chief instigator of the criticism was? It was Judas. Judas, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. And he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, I don't think John knew that Judas was embezzling funds at the time, but it was discovered later. And by the time the Gospels are written, the greed of Judas is fully exposed. And at this dinner, in Jesus' honor, a week before his death, 
Judas influenced the other disciples to be critical. I want you to notice the contrast between Mary and Judas here. Westcott writes, Mary, in her devotion, provides for the honor of the dead. Judas, in his selfishness, brings about the death himself. Judas criticized Mary harshly, openly chastising her for an act that he said was wasteful. Don't you imagine that Mary wanted to just sink right through the floor? Judas humiliated her. She had attempted to do something extravagant that would demonstrate her thanksgiving for Jesus, and she had humbly let her hair down as an act of devotion. And Judas rudely disrespected her. This is the hostess who is providing the dinner, and he's confronting her, not from a position of righteousness, not from a position of genuine concern for the poor, but simply motivated by his own greed. So he says, why this waste? The economy's bad. The future's uncertain. Working people are unemployed. The housing market is volatile. People are hurting. There's less money to meet people's basic needs. Is this really a good time for such a gift? Here's the thing. Jesus once said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, if we follow the money in our own lives, it'll reveal what we care about most. Now, friends, this is why I only give to the church and to Christian causes. That's where I want my heart to be, so that's where I put my treasure. To each his own here. But can I share with you my personal convictions? I don't give to secular education. Only Christian education. I do pay taxes. And a lot of that, I understand, goes to education. But I don't give anymore. I don't give to medical research. I give to medical missions. I don't give to civic organizations. I give to local organizations that do benevolence in the name of Jesus. My reasoning is that there are a lot of other folks out there who don't care one thing about the kingdom of God, and they will give the money, sometimes big money, to elect political candidates, many of whom are in and out of office before you know it, some of whom will trade their loyalty to their supporters for political expediency. People out there who will give money to build buildings on university campuses where God is not honored. People out there who will give money to rescue abused cats and dogs. People out there who will financially underwrite organizations that pay their executives exorbitant salaries. Call me crazy. I've decided I'm not breaking my alabaster box for anything else or anyone else except Jesus. Back to Judas. Judas was no Mother Teresa. 
He didn't care about the poor. In his greed, Judas secretly felt indicted by Mary's sacrificial gift. He wanted more money in the disciples' bag so he could pilfer it more often without being detected. So he criticized her. And it has been my observation that the people who are most critical of the church and most critical in the church are people who are not unselfishly financially invested. That was Judas. He was a talker and a taker. He was not a giver, and his love of money sealed his fate. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. In fact, Matthew and Mark note that it was immediately after this very night that Judas made his arrangement with the chief priests to betray Jesus for the price of a slave. The irony here, the tragedy here, is that while Mary voluntarily worshipped Him with a year's wages, Judas agreed to betray Jesus for a month's wages. But think about this. Judas is not the last person to exchange loyalty to Jesus for money. It's a fateful trade. Well, I must close by talking about the grace of Jesus in verses 7 and 8. I really like it when, when Jesus comes across like this. I do. Leave her alone. Hope I got the inflection right, Lord. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Judas pushed it too far, and he and the disciples earned themselves a rebuke from the Master. So now the embarrassment has shifted from Mary to Judas and the disciples. You see, the only voice in favor of what Mary did that night was the only one that really mattered. Matthew 26, verse 10 quotes Jesus as saying, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Our Lord emphasized the fact that Mary's gift was for Him. Nothing that we give to God will ever go unnoticed, will ever go unrewarded by Him. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. That's the way we show our thanksgiving to Jesus today, by helping people in His name. Our service and our stewardship through the church that helps meet the spiritual and the physical and the emotional and the relational needs of people in Jesus' name, that's the way. That's the way we anoint His feet in the 21st century. And this is how the love and grace of Jesus become real to people. In Mark's account of this event, 
he adds that Jesus also said about Mary, she did what she could. She did what she could, and she made a difference in Matthew 26, 13. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Listen to the words of Philip Keller, who amplifies the scene from the gospel accounts. The perfume first filled the room with its fragrance as it ran down from his head into his beard. Then his feet were anointed. His tunic was drenched with its enduring pungency, and wherever Jesus moved during the ensuing days, the pleasing reminder of Mary's devotion would go with him into the upper room, into the Garden of Gethsemane, into the high priest's courtyard, into Pilate's palace, even to the scourging block. And with every crack of the whip and with every blow from a fist or a club, with each nail driven, Jesus was reminded that there would be those in every generation who would be thankful for His grace and show it. There would be those in every age who would value His love and show it. So would you join me tonight in saying in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, we want to give you the gift you desire most today, the most treasured thing that we possess, our hearts, the most valuable thing we have to give, our lives. Our lives, Lord, we pour out at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. When Judas's greed was exposed and that evening when the grace of Jesus was magnified. We want to learn from it, Lord, and what we learn from it today, our takeaway today is this. We want to give you the gift that you desire the most today, and we know. We know, Lord, it is not, it is not perfume. The most treasured thing that we possess is our hearts, the most valuable thing that we possess is our lives. And so, we pour them out this morning at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.